Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 448. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 448 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated producer, engineer Tim O'Sullivan, based out of Los Angeles. He's worked on projects for Raylan Baxter, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, as well as Chicano Batman and many others. You can check him out at osullivanaudio.com. We're going to talk all about his journey, as we usually do, so I look forward to you hearing that discussion. Tim O'Sullivan coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about the importance of doing audio in public. Many of us do our audio gigs behind closed doors. We do it in post-production facilities, recording studios, in our homes. Uh, That's what I've been doing for the last several years. I've been mixing and mastering out of my home. Clearly, our audience is limited when we do that. Our audience are the people that we're delivering the the product for, whatever it happens to be, a movie, a record, et cetera, et cetera. And not many people in the general public notice or have any clue what we're doing. One thing that I've done over the last several years here and there for some very select gigs is I'll get out and I'll do live sound, which to me is one of the scariest things if you're doing it on a you know big level uh, that one can do. So hats off to my live front of house people, monitoring people out there on the road, doing your thing. I have such huge respect for what you do. And, <laughs> you know, it's like watching people jump out of airplanes. It's like, wow, that's that looks super fun, but I don't think I could do that. But here's what I've experienced in my gigs that I've done here and there. And these are for like, you know, like a local jazz camp or a, a middle school jazz fundraiser performance. These are generally like, you know, analog boards, probably no more than eight to 10 channels at best. And for me, those are manageable gigs. Those are those are low pressure gigs for sure. What I love about those gigs is it gets you out in the community and people see you and you get a chance to talk with people. And it's really amazing to me the appreciation from not only the people on stage but the community at large that you know you know comes up and chats with you you know says oh man it sounded great i you know loved it you know no feedback i love that you know when you're doing what i think most of us would do naturally which is a professional job people really appreciate that they they have a cursory understanding of sound and when one does it out in public it's kind of an interesting thing, I, I think, to those that don't do it all the time. To all of us, it's like, you know, it's old hat. We all know what the drill is and we just do our job and we do it to the best of our ability. And as scary as I find la- live sound to be, those gigs being low pressure are not scary to me. And the fact that I don't have a digital board there with multiple layers and lots to figure out, having it be an analog board, it's all right there. I can quickly control it. It's just a great feeling. It, it all works out really well. 
but it does a few things. It's, you know, it's a bit of a boost, I think, to us mentally to be like, oh yeah, oh, people appreciate this. This is, that's super cool. It also feels good to be out in the community doing something that large amounts of people are enjoying. And it's nice when you have younger musicians that you're providing a level of support for that they're covered. You know, they, they're not going to get up and do a, a solo and have a lot of feedback and be embarrassed. It's, it works out really well. And also it's, you know, people see, oh, right. That's so-and-so that's what they do. I forgot that's, yeah, I've heard that that person does that. And it's just kind of like a, a recognition of, oh, they know somebody who does this, who does this sound thing, right? And will it lead to any other gigs? Uh, I don't know, you know, it's possible, but I think it's it's more of the benefits of it all besides that. I'm not really going out and doing these gigs to get more gigs, because quite honestly, I don't really want to be making, uh, um, I don't want to diversify so much into doing live sound that that's a regular income stream. It's like a nice one-off here and there, two to three times a year at best. But I think what I get out of it is the social element from it, which, you know, being an extrovert, I, you know, that's important to me. I thrive off that. And then I also bring along my youngest son who works with me. And that's fun to have my son there. We're doing stuff together. He's learning a bit. Uh, people see us, you know, see the father and son doing the audio thing. I'm sure it's, you know, in some respects, charming in some respects, like, oh, well, poor kid. He got dragged out of the house and has to do sound with his dad. But I do find it fascinating to do. And on occasion also, I will do some live recordings for the schools. Yeah, that community thing, man, it really it can it can really be a boost. You know, you're helping out. In some cases, I'm paid. In some cases, I'm not paid. But I love being a part of the community as a whole and having that role. So, you know, if you're getting a little stir crazy, you might think about getting out of the studio and flexing your live sound skills a bit. It's really, as I'm sure the live sound folks are like, yeah, duh, to those that are stuck in studios all the time. It's a really great way to do a, a number of things, as I mentioned, all the community things, but it's also a really great way to musically reconnect with live music as it's happening with warts and all, you know, flaws and all. You know, there's some things you're like, oh, oh, I wish I could change that. Can we undo? Can we, you know, can we cut and paste? Can we? No, it's live and it's great because it just happens. And then it passes by and it's done. And the experience for the audience is uh, one of deep appreciation for the musicians. And, and, and one of the best things is making it sound good so that nobody notices that you're there until somebody physically, you know, turns around and sees you, of course. But so that's my rant, really. It's about getting out, participating in your community, flexing your live sound skills a bit, and getting a, a live musical perspective. And at the end of the day, that, that live music experience is not just for the audience, it's for you too. It's for you to reacquaint yourself with how music sounds in a live setting. Because I think that for those of us that do work on music, it will reacquaint you with reality. It will reacquaint you with the instruments and the acoustics of a space and how to problem solve. It has all kinds of side benefits, which I could, you know, sit here and ramble on about, but I won't. So that's that's it in a nutshell. Get out in the community, try some live sound stuff, and uh, if you conquer your live sound fears, if you have any of those, because man, when I first started jumping into it, I was like, oh boy, here we go. We all know what to do at the end of the day. So once you get it over that initial fear, it's like. It's like anything you're scared of. 
You just jump in and you do it. Anyhow, that's it. Not much more to tell. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Tim O'Sullivan here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, glad to be here. I like to, as my audience knows, dig right into the past. So I'm going to ask you, where did you grow up? I'm originally from Phoenix, Arizona. Mm. Grew up there, went to school in Tucson. God, Phoenix is just ungodly hot. Yeah, I'm super glad to not be there this time of year. My family, my grandparents were in Long Beach. My family's from Los Angeles and my mom was a school teacher. So this time of year, we'd always be in Long Beach, like usually 4th of July weekend, like leave Phoenix and don't come back until school starts. Until they've extinguished just, the sun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I mean, right now it's monsoon season and like it's both humid and hot. So all that stuff about it being a dry heat just goes right out the window. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's and big dust storms and like you can't even go in the pool because you'll get struck by lightning at three in the afternoon. I went to a uh, potluck audio conference in Tucson one year and I flew into Phoenix and I yeah. rent, rented a car and I got into the garage, you know, where they have all the rental cars in that one facility. And I got in and the car said 110 and I was like, oh my God, I got to get a picture of this. And, <laughs> and, and I took a picture of it and then I got out onto the highway and it was like 113, 114. And I was like, oh my God, please don't break down and please don't catch on fire as I drive yeah. to Tucson. Yeah. I had a 1972 Datsun 240Z with like black 70s vinyl interior and no air conditioning when I was like 19 and living in Tucson. <laughs> I loved that car, but I, you know, I stuck to the seats every day. It was brutal and it overheated all the time. Wow. Well, we both know the joke of the dry heat of the Southwest, me being from New Mexico, you being from Arizona. Well, so tell me about your upbringing. Yeah, I mean, I took piano lessons as a kid, wasn't very good at sports. I was kind of clumsy. My parents asked the pediatrician, you know, they were they were concerned I wasn't growing as much as the other kids mm -hmm. and that I had, I was clumsy enough that they thought I might have hand-eye coordination problems. And the pediatrician said, he's fine. He's just not good at sports, but maybe try piano lessons. So my parents weren't really musicians or anything, but that was why I started playing piano and like started really exploring music. My dad is a huge vinyl collector and buys a lot of records and go to record stores all the time in concerts. So music was always playing in the house, mm. but they weren't actually musicians themselves. And then I had an uncle who was my dad's much younger brother who I think he was maybe 12 or 13 when I was born. And he and I were very close and he had this punk band when I was growing up. And so we'd go visit my grandmother in Diamond Bar, which is outside Pomona in Southern California. And I'd watch his band practice and I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And then he put out a record and I remember my dad being super excited about it. And we went to every record store in Phoenix to ask if they had it and to buy every copy they had if they did have it. And that was kind of the moment where I realized like, oh, people make records. This is really exciting. Maybe this is something that you know, and looking back on it, it's easy to say that, but I, I feel like that was the first point where I thought maybe there's something here. That's interesting. Were you in school band at all? No, mm. no, I played in a bunch of bands with friends in high school that never really did much, but practice. And we would throw concerts at our school all the time, like battle the bands and had a club that did that. And then we would also throw concerts where we'd get local musicians to come play for various charities in the gym. That was kind of my first experience with like setting up a PA and how to mic a drum kit and how to, how any of the technological aspect of it actually works. Did you have uh, leanings more towards being a musician or were you starting to gravitate towards the audio side of it? At the time, I thought I wanted to be a musician and like wanted to play, and especially in college and went to music school, was playing keyboards and bands and was really excited about that. Mm -hmm. And at the time I thought that that was really what I wanted to do, but I got an internship in a recording studio during college and really quickly realized that the only reason that I was in the bands was to record them and that that was what I was really more excited about. Yeah. And I liked 
playing with synthesizers. I liked playing with the toys. I liked buying new pedals and trying new sounds and doing things like that. And I liked playing music with my friends and making sounds, but like being on stage or like having the spotlight on me wasn't that it was unappealing. It just had zero appeal. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't what I was focused on. And I realized pretty quickly during college that like, I just wanted to make records. Where did you go to college? Uh, the U of A in Tucson. Okay. So were you living in Phoenix and commuting to Tucson or living in Tucson? I was living in Tucson. It was an hour and a half away. It was far enough away that I felt like I was somewhere new and had some independence and could grow, mm-hmm. uh, but close enough that I could get in-state tuition. And when you're 18, an hour and a half feels super far away. And now living in LA for over 10 years, that's- That's, that's a trip I, that's to the grocery to store. Yeah, that's how long it takes. My commute's been that long for some gigs. Right. What studio were you interning at? So there was a recording studio at the college that was mostly for professors' projects and grad student applications, things like that. But it was also available to any student to book it. It just was like really poorly promoted Mm -hmm. in that sense. Like students didn't realize that it was there as a resource that they could use and it just been there forever. And there weren't any formal recording. There was one recording class that they offered, but it really wasn't part of the program there. Everything was very music theory and performance based. I think there was one electronic music class, but it was for grad students in the composition program, which I think was honestly like at the time I found that really disappointing. But looking back on it, I think that was really a good thing for me that I spent this time focused on how to make music, what's important about music, what's important about the songs, not how to use a piece of gear. Right. But there was a studio there and I people usually intern there for one semester and get some course credit for it. I ended up interning there for two and a half years mm. and then just spending as much time as I could there after hours recording my friends' bands. We'd put out these little local compilations of all our friends' bands and, you know, burn 500 copies of them and sell them on consignment at record stores. And we were just recording all that, like either with borrowed equipment in someone's living room or at the studio at the, at the college. Did you start to buy gear at that time? I did. I had a 1996 Acura Integra that I bought myself in high school and I absolutely loved that car. And I was practicing one night. I think I had a performance test the next day at school and my car was parked right outside my window. My keyboard was facing the window, but the blinds were closed. And I lived in a house with a bunch of roommates and every single one of them came in and said, Hey, Tim, your car's on fire. Go check on it. You know, we're a bunch of college students living together. I assumed that they're, that's just a bad prank. And I ignore them until one of my friends finally grabs me and drags me outside. I go and see that someone had lit my car on fire and it was just completely destroyed. And the police eventually came and I talked to them and I guess like five or six other cars on the block had also got torched. They think it was just some kids messing around doing something stupid. But anyways, at that point I had like a little micro Korg and like some little Korg piano thing that I could practice on and that was it. And then all of a sudden I get a check for couple thousand dollars from the insurance company and I'm 19 years old and I ended up getting like way more than I paid for the car and I spent half of it on a 72 Datsun 240Z which I absolutely loved and the other half I went right to Rainbow Guitars in Tucson and bought a (laughs) 
Firepod <laughs> and pair of KRKs and a couple 57s and some cables. And that was wow. kind of it. Who the fuck sets cars on fire like randomly like that? That's so weird. I couldn't be happier that it happened. I know. Yeah. It's, it's like at <laughs> first you think, oh my God, but yeah, how great getting a bunch of money from the insurance company right, just, and you got a replacement yeah. car out of the deal. Someone committed insurance fraud for me. So it was great. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess in my mind, I think that, okay, if you live in Phoenix or Tucson, it's natural. You're going to go to crass, right? Was that around at the time? It was, but I enrolled in the U of A and was studying mechanical engineering. Mm. And at that point in my life, I was super interested in cars and working with my hands and thought that that was like a practical adult choice to make more than pursuing music. And music was something that I was super passionate about, but didn't seem like it could be a career. So I studied mechanical engineering for two years, was super miserable. And I literally walked out of a chemistry final, just said, fuck this, and walked out of a chemistry final and walked straight to the advisor's office in the music department and enrolled, not knowing how to read sheet music, just signed up and just was like, felt like it was the only thing that I could do to be happy. Your uh, decision to to go into mechanical engineering, was that driven mostly by your own thoughts? Or do you think that your parents were like, no, 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 you really need to do something adult? Both. Okay. Both. Yeah. I mean, I think I, maybe I internalized some of that from my parents and grandparents, but it was definitely my own, like, I think because I, I wasn't super driven to like be an artist or get my songs out there or perform it took me a while to realize what I really wanted to do with music and why I was so passionate about it and, and what, and what would be an actual path in that. Okay. But I enrolled in music school, just knowing that I needed to do something. Yeah. Were you aware of the other studios in the area? Cause like what, what year is this? I was in Tucson from 2004 till like 2008. Okay. Was Jim Brady's studio still there? Yeah. Yeah. Jim Brady, and then, of course, Craig Schumacher, who's a good friend of mine, Wave Lab, and then uh, Catherine Veracoli's studio. And was hers in Phoenix? Maybe. Or yeah. Did you- yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. But yeah, I was definitely aware of Wave Lab and went by there. And yeah, it just wasn't like those places didn't seem accessible. And maybe because they were small private studios. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they were just overrun with requests from students from CRASS looking for internships. That went, Oh, I bet. Because I love... I still try and make music with friends from Phoenix and like I'm actually working with a band that's from Tucson next week. They're on tour and they're when they come through LA, they stop in LA for a few days and then we get to record and then they go home. So I really love the music there and love being able to make music with people from there. But those studios seemed super inaccessible to me as a young kid, like because they were one people operations. They didn't need a bunch of kids running around helping. There wasn't an opportunity to get in there and make coffee or things like that. And Craig has sold since. Okay. Yeah. I texted with him the other day and he was telling me that he bought the building at some point and then he sold it. So WaveLab was a pretty magical place. Well, the different incarnations of WaveLab yeah. were magical places. Tucson is a fascinating place. Great food. Love it there. Still have some great friends there. So two questions. Did you graduate from college? 
And where did you go from there, regardless of graduating? I went straight to Capitol. I had gone to the AES convention in San Francisco Mm. a few times when I was a student, basically begged my parents, like, if you pay for my plane ticket, I promise this is this is where I'll get a job. Just please buy me a plane ticket. And then I went to all the student panels and just tried to learn as much as I could. And on my way back, I'm sitting at an airport bar waiting for my flight. There's a happens to be a U of A game on guy sitting next to me, sees my Arizona driver's license, asks me if I'm from Tucson. And then as we're talking, I overhear some people at the other end of the bar that clearly worked at Capitol. The guy next to me, he's like, hey, aren't you here for, isn't that like a big recording studio? Like, aren't you here? You're here for this conference. Go, go talk to him. Hmm. I'm really reluctant to do it. This random person in a bar pushes me to go talk to him. I walk up and talk to him and have my resume in my hand. They start cracking up because it's been a whole week of kids walking up with their resume, hoping for a job. But because they're in a good mood and waiting for their flight, it turned out we were on the same flight. They spend the next hour just talking to me. And it turns out that was Tom Schlum, who was the chief tech at Capitol at the time, and Greg Parkin, who was the uh, VP of studios at the time. And so I spent the next hour talking to him, got their card. Two years later, when I was in LA crashing on my cousin's couch, looking for a studio job, I hit up Greg Parkin and said, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but we met at AES and you told me to give you a call when I was in LA. I'm in LA. (laughs) Do you need anybody? And he started cracking up. Didn't remember this at all, but he's like, good on you for calling. We actually just had to let somebody go. Perfect timing. We'll set up an interview and come in for the runner pool. The runners there were set up techs and they would work on shifts. There'd be people on the day shift who would mostly do runs and get whatever the sessions needed. And then people on the night shifts would set up for the next day's session. Hmm. But then there would be one person who was basically the floating shift that would pick up any, like, if one of the staff engineers is the first engineer on a session, then one of the runners would get bumped up to second engineer on that session. Now there's an open runnership. And so I was that fill-in guy for about six months until a spot opened up. Back to the first part of my question, did you end up graduating? No. You obviously had an epiphany and decided to go to Los Angeles. Yeah. I was doing my last few classes online. I needed one German class to graduate. Hmm. And the U of A had just started experimenting with online classes and they canceled my last German class. There wasn't enough enrollment and they weren't offering the online version. So I had a choice of turning down the job at Capital or coming back to Tucson for a semester and finishing this one class or just saying fuck it. So that's what I did. Yeah, I think I would have done the same thing. I'm sorry to keep asking you about school, but do you think it would make any sense now to like take an online class to get your degree there? Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) I learned everything that I wanted to from it. Mm -hmm. I've been a freelance engineer for the last 10 years. No one's asking to see my resume. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody wants to know if you went to college. Not a formal, I'm applying for jobs. People care about my credits and the records that I've done and it's word of mouth and things like that. And if I was in a different field, sure. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's not honestly not something I've I've thought about. Yeah. So you bail on that and you come to Los Angeles and you end up going to Capitol. 
that's a stroke of luck. Your timing there was stupendous. What was the takeaway from your time at Capital? Did you just stay at the runner position there? Or did you end up getting up higher in the in the food chain? So about six months into being there, there was a booking snafu. Paul Salvatore at the time was, or forever was booking all the sessions and is the absolute best in the world at that. There was basically a session that was, I don't even remember, it was like some promo thing for like social media for some artist that was on Capitol and some A&R executive from upstairs had just come down to her office and kind of insisted on doing a session at some point and didn't actually go through the proper procedure of like confirming everything or like ever following up on. And then on the day of the session that they hadn't confirmed, they just showed up at 8 a.m., There wasn't supposed to be anything in Studio A until like one o'clock that afternoon. I was there on the day runner shift making coffee and a camera crew walks in, an artist, this label executive, I don't remember their name or position or anything, but they just walked in like they were supposed to be there. And I said, hey, can I help you? And they said, yeah, we have a session. You know, I'm so-and-so. Where's the engineer? And I panicked and said, you know, one second and ran up to the office, called Paula, let her know what was going on. She said that one of the staff engineers would be there as soon as possible. Turned out nobody could be there for a couple hours. And, you know, at the time they were really strict about the runners even being in the control rooms. Like we were not supposed to be in there unless we were cleaning. So I had no familiarity with the patch bay, like had barely been in the control room, was terrified to be in there. But Paula ended up calling Nico Bolas, who had a room upstairs and saying, hey, Nico, are you close by? Because I need a favor. and I need someone to come down and do this session. So Nico came down to engineer the session, but someone had to assist him and someone had to set it up. And I had never even touched the patch bay at that point, had no idea what I was doing in the room, but ended up making it through the session. And I think Nico wanted me to print the board mix, it was like two mics. It was like a vocal and an acoustic guitar. And he wanted me to print the console mix at the end of the session. And I had no idea how to do that. And it was a very simple request. At this point, he knew I was a runner who was making coffee who just got pushed into this. But I told him that I'm not quite sure how to do that, but bear with me and I'll figure it out. And, you know, I spent a few seconds poking around the patch bay, figured out how to do that, printed it for him and everybody was happy. And after the session, Nico pulled me aside and said, hey, anyone else would have lied to me and possibly gotten us into a jam on this session. You owned up and were honest, but also assured everyone that you were going to figure it out. And you did. And because of that, he was able to trust me and started requesting me on sessions, even though I was still just like the fill-in runner. And so I ended up assisting Nico on a bunch of stuff and learning a bunch of things from him. And then from there, I got to assist some of the staff engineers and learn from them and and go on from there. How did you figure it out? How did you come up with the answer? Once I told everyone that I didn't know how to do it Mm -hmm. and that I needed a second to figure it out, but that I was going to, the pressure was gone. And I I was just able to calmly read the patch page and go, oh, mix out. I bet if I plug that into two Pro Tools inputs and press record, we'll get... We'll get what we're looking for. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, good. But what I learned from that was, you know, the important thing is being honest with everybody in the room and not, 
especially in a high pressure session, like the kind of sessions that happen at Capital, not derailing the session because you're crossing your fingers that something is working or crossing your fingers that, that you did it right. I'm not saying there, you know, if there's a technical issue that you need to rub it in your client's faces and derail the session that way, you need to handle business and keep the studio running. But I learned from that situation that like, as soon as everybody is open and honest about what's happening, it all can move forward together. And that trust in the room is the most valuable thing, not knowing the answer to every question. And for the younger, less experienced folks out there listening, this also really kind of, you mentioned something earlier about, you know, not being worried about learning an individual piece of gear. I think it's more about learning signal flow and understanding how you get from here, A to B, and everything in between. And if you understand that, and maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but it seems that if you know that, it's a lot easier rather than trying to like read the manual on a particular mic pre. It's like, where is the mic pre in the in the signal flow? If you know basic signal flow, because I, I did know basic signal flow at that point. I just didn't know that patch bay. Mm-hmm. So if you know basic signal flow and have the confidence of like, I can figure this out, you will. Yeah. For sure. It's not about, oh, I need to be hyper prepared for every situation or I need to know the inner workings of every piece of gear that I could possibly encounter. It's knowing I know how gear works. I know what gear does. I know what I like. And I'll find the answer in in this individual situation. Yeah. That's great that Nico really embraced you for your honesty at that moment. Yeah. I I think that's super cool. And because you brought him up, audience, I'll put a link in the show notes to my interview with Nico from, I can't even remember what number it is, but long ago, a good chat with Nico Bolas. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out.
How long did you stay at Capitol? I was there for two and a half years. So I was assisting Nico and, and Steve Jenowick and, and Paul Smith and some of the other engineers there and getting more and more frustrated with the fact that I would do that and then go back to a runnership and realizing that it was going to be a long time before, before a permanent, you know, that part of what's great about capital is that the staff stays there for 30 years. The problem with that is that when you're a newer staff member, you know, I was there for two and a half years and I was still the new guy. Right. And at that age, that feels like that was my first job, period. And that just felt like an eternity. Also, I just want to point out, as of this recording, Capitol's actually closed down. Yeah. They're doing earthquake retrofitting, and I believe all the staff has been let go. And maybe in two or three years, it'll come back and they'll refigure it out. But that's the state of things as of where we're at in July of 2023 as we record this. Yeah. No, that's definitely, I was on tour with Chicano Batman when I read about that. And it was, you know, it was definitely, it was strange because for me, especially Capital is always a place that that staff and that from what I've heard, I have every intention of opening back up, but we'll see if those people are there. They have to work in the meantime. Yeah. Yeah. Best case scenario, some people are going to move on. There's going to be some change. I'm sure it'll be something great, but I mean, it was heartbreaking that that happened. But from everybody that I've been in touch with, they're all, I think for some of them, it's been kind of a really cool, like push out of the nest moment. And like, they're all doing bigger things that, that hopefully are, are better for them and the, them personally in the long term. Well, so you grew frustrated with your time there because you realized it's like one step forward, two steps back into the runner position. So did you act on that and, and make a yeah. move? Yeah, so I did. So at the time, John Bryan was camped out in Studio B and his crew was just like, it was just a completely different vibe from the sort of sessions that we would usually have there of like big band dates and string dates and TV projects. And here's these crazy people working on rock albums till six in the morning. And some of the Capitol guys were like, I have kids. I don't want to be coming into work at two in the afternoon and leaving at 6 a.m every day, put one of the young guys on this. And so I started coming into those sessions at like midnight and I would just be like night crew relief, do recall photos and clean things up and save flying fader sessions and things like that and do hard drive backups and then be there for whatever they were working on late into the night. But through that, I got kind of close with that crew. There was a tech that was working with them who also was working over at UTA and Barefoot with Eric Valentine, and they were starting to make the consoles and stuff like that. And he was doing a bunch of wiring for John Bryan, and he asked me if I wanted to help him with that. And I had no idea what I was doing at the time, and he was super into that because that meant that I was a blank slate and he could show me how to do things the way that he wanted them done. So I ended up doing a ton of wiring for John Bryan's live rig and stuff like that, but working on that over at Barefoot. So I met Eric over there and then was helping with building the first consoles. And I did that for about six months while I was working at Capital. And then during that process, Capital decided to redo Studio A and install the new Neve that's in there now. And they hired some outside techs to help with that process. And it turns out the people that they had hired had been the techs I'd been working with at UTA. 
So I went to Greg Parkin and said, hey, I actually know how to do this sort of stuff. I've been building consoles over at UTA, helping out over there, working with this same wiring crew that you hired to help out on the Studio A install. I want to help with that. I want to do that full time. And I, I want to be a tech. So I spent the next year or so at Capital as a tech, like six months of that working on on the Studio A install and then wiring the new writing rooms that they were doing and stuff like that. And then when I finished up that process, I went to work in archives at EMI, but was still working at UTA. I was like looking for some way to not go back to being a runner. So I ended up working on this archives project at EMI and the sale to Universal was going through and they were trying to like make all the archives and all the tape transfers and everything and all the library stuff like look just super tight and basically justify that entire department's existence before Universal came in. And so I was working on that and really pushing to make like that a permanent position, but then was working at UTA after I'd work eight to five or whatever at Capitol and then go work at UTA till Hmm. 10 o'clock at night every day. You know, I did that for like six months and I was just exhausted. (laughs) <laughs> but but you were surviving, were you not? Yeah, barely. I'm just super fried and just doing too many things. And I went and scheduled a meeting with Greg Parkin, who at the time was VP of Studios, and said, listen, I've been burning the candle at both ends. I really need a permanent position. This archives project has been great, but what can we do to make this into a permanent position? And he said, this is going to be a process and we're going to have to go up the chain and you'll have to interview for the job and it'll take some time. And while I'm having this meeting and kind of not getting the answer that I want to get, my phone is just blowing up. I'm just getting call after call after call. And I said, I'm really sorry. I don't know what this is, but I think this is an emergency. I need to pick it up. I walk out of the meeting and it's Eric Valentine calling me saying, Hey man, we just sold a bunch of consoles. I need you to quit your job. Like come over to UTA full time. So I walked back into that meeting and said, hey, I really love Capital, but unless there's like a firm permanent offer for me where I don't have to go back to being a runner, I have to take this UTA job. So I left Capital to go work at UTA and Barefoot. That's awesome. So funny how timing is, you know, with some things from your car getting set on fire to running into the guys at the bar in the airport to sleeping on friends' couches in LA, calling them and saying, hey, I'm here. Well, we just we just had to let somebody go. Like, you've had some serendipitous moments in your time. Yeah, I've been super lucky in that sense. But I mean, I'm also leaving out all the, the doors that I knocked on that weren't open. Yeah. Because it, it was really more about being persistent than those lucky things happened. I was working two full-time jobs for a year in order to get that phone call. Yeah. The persistence thing, can you comment a little more on that in terms of like making a decision about leaving the school, going to LA, or even walking out of the, I think you said it was a a chemistry final and going into the music department. It's just like that once you recognize where it is you want to be acting on it and not just sitting around and talking about it, just trying and trying and trying and trying. And as you say, staying persistent. Yeah. I mean- when I was at Barefoot, I was the booking manager and it's all about, it's still about persistence. Like I'm freelance. If I just sit on my butt and wait for gigs, they don't come. 
I'm constantly reaching out to clients, to artists that I've worked with about, hey, what are you working on now? What's going on? Hey, I just finished this really great project. Check it out. Oh, by the way, I, I finished this project, so I'm available to work on what you've got going on. And it's still about just persistence and knocking on doors and like waking up every day and being like, this is what I want to do today and, and pushing on it. And would you, would you agree that it's also, you have to have a confidence into advocating for yourself. Yeah. That's a lesson I always talk to my kids about. It's like, okay, hey, the teacher graded something wrong. You got to have the confidence to go up and say, hey, I think we have an issue here. Could we look at this? It's the same thing in the world of, of any world for that matter, but especially in the world of pro audio. It's like, you got to be persistent and advocate for yourself if you want to pursue the things that are important to you. Yeah. And doing that in a way that's warm and inviting and mm-hmm. not condescending or like aggressive, you know, just like, hey, I really like the music that you make and I'd love to make music with you. What are you doing? It needs to feel like an invitation, not I'm the best and you got to be working with me and just inserting yourself into a situation that you're not supposed to be. Yeah. When I was running Barefoot, I would have students hitting me up all the time, asking for internships, asking for a job. And the students that got in there weren't the ones that just showed up and barged in and and demanded to be in the room. And once they got there, the ones that were in the control room, like helping us with sessions, working on sessions, weren't the ones that barged in and demanded to be there. The ones that found a way to advocate for themselves. There was a guy, Tim Jones, who emailed me constantly about getting in there for an internship. He showed up to an open house thing that UTA was doing, took a tour and came up to me and politely introduced himself and said, you know, hey, if you ever need anybody, please keep me in mind. He politely continued to reach out and we got him in there for an internship. He was the nicest, calmest guy to be around, worked super hard, always looked like he was working super hard but was just always super welcoming to anybody who passed by like, hey, how are you doing? Can I help you with anything? Always, anytime you saw him in the hallway. And then I started using him on sessions all the time because he, in an unrelated conversation, found a polite way to mention, by the way, I've toured as a drum tech. And once I knew that he did that, I said, that's great. Next time I have a drum session coming up, tune the drums, set it up, And let's see if that's something that you can do and something that we can have you regularly do. And then from that point on, anytime I had a drum session, Tim would come in and and set it up. And then when I went on tour with Chicano Batman as their production manager a year ago, Tim came out for a while as Chicano's drum tech. So a polite persistence. Yeah. Yeah. Quickly walk me through your escalation of responsibility at UTA. So I started out at UTA putting knobs on the consoles. That was the first task that I was given. And then making Elko cables. I did that for about six months. And then when we sold a few more consoles, the first one we sold was Greg Wells' console. And that was the first one that I went over to work on full time. Because I had a background in working on cars and doing fabrication stuff and was able to help out with some of the more mechanical things, my job title became assembly and fabrication. And so I would order panels from Front Panel Express and I made the little keyboard that we made little metal wraparound keyboard stands for the bolsters. And I made those and spray painted them in the parking lot and 
so that that kind of grew and then when we did the first hundred MPQs, the first rack rack gear piece of equipment that we did then they, they hired a few more people to help out and we had a staff of like five or six people and we were just sitting around stuffing circuit boards the first hundred we manufactured all in-house and mm-hmm. so it was all stuffing circuit boards testing stuff just helping out with everything but eventually didn't you go to to manage the studio at some point yeah so i did that until i think 2014 and then they decided to go to contract manufacturers mm-hmm. and so that kind of meant that as the only full-time <laughs> assembly and fabrication person my my job at uta was over at that point we were working out of barefoot and eric called me into the control room and told me that that was what was happening i was a little freaked out because like, I just left my job at Capital to come work here. What do I do? And he's like, you need to go out and make records. And so that's what I did. And I called every contact I had and then started working as a freelance engineer and then started doing studio installs. And so basically did a studio on Palm Springs, then did Robbie Krieger's studio and was 50-50 doing studio installs and making records until 2016. Mm-hmm. And then in 2016, I moved to Brooklyn and opened a studio with some friends out there. And Whoa, that's a left turn. Well, I had a basically a consulting gig with this software startup that wanted to build a recording studio. Mm-hmm. And so I basically spent three months consulting them on the process of like what it would look like to go through the process of actually building a studio and what it would cost and helping them kind of figure that out. And then we didn't build a damn thing. And it's three months later and all my stuff is in storage and I was having a great time in Brooklyn and some friends had a studio there. And at the time, a lot of the records I had been doing had been a lot of commercial music and a lot of hip hop records. And I grew up playing in noisy punk bands and here's all my friends from noisy punk bands in Brooklyn with a studio asking me if I want to join them. How long did that last? That lasted until about 2018. We were in Greenpoint and the building we were in was pretty rapidly gentrifying. The HBO show Girls ended up having a production office across the hall. And like, I think when my friends moved into that building originally in like 2009, there was like a illegal tattoo parlor in that unit. <laughs> and, by the, and by that point, HBO has a production office. And a lot of the new tenants were, we had a pretty ironclad lease that said, you know, we're a recording studio. That's what we do. We can be as loud as we want. Sorry. But that didn't really stop the landlord from telling all the other tenants that we were the problem. And it just became this really tense situation where the super's coming and opening the door to the unit and barging in in the middle of takes. And it went from being this very free, like exciting Thing where I'm making records with my friends to being this stressful situation where I felt super unwanted. And Kean Riordan, who was Eric's longtime engineer, was in Studio B. He put a post on Instagram saying that he was moving out of Studio B. I called him like two minutes after he had posted it, asked him what was happening. And he said, you know, I'm going to build a studio at my house and move out of Studio B and it's available. And Eric wants to rent it out. Called Eric and the conversation about me renting Studio B quickly opened up to like, what's happening with Studio A? Eric had married his wife, Grace Potter. Mm -hmm. They had bought a house in Topanga and built a studio there. He wasn't using Barefoot as much. And Studio A was just kind of sitting there. And that conversation basically progressed into 
I'm trying to figure out ways to make moving from Brooklyn back to LA make sense. And I'm working on a completely different kind of music now, have a whole new client base. None of those clients are in LA. And I'm trying to figure out, but I know this is going to be a good move for me, but I need to figure out a way to make it make sense. And so I'm trying to figure out ways to make sure that I have the rent paid for Studio B. And so that conversation kind of turned into like, well, what if I'm the studio manager and I'm running Studio A and we're booking Studio A and that pays some of the costs of operating the studio and then maybe you can pay me as a stipend and maybe knock some off on my rent on Studio B and then I'll work out of Studio B. And then I ended up calling Nick Zinner from the AAS and my friend Joe Napolitano and the three of us ended up splitting Studio B. And then Nick and I worked on a bunch of projects together. And then we opened up Studio A for outside bookings. And that that was supposed to be like a part-time thing that I was doing to like save on my rent in Studio B. And I was primarily going to be working on my projects in there. But I think we kind of quickly realized like how big a project opening up a commercial studio was and that that role just kept growing and oh yeah and then it it more and more became a thing where i had two full-time jobs again where i was working on the records i was working on in studio b and then keeping studio a booked and operational and fixing gear and running the staff you're not doing that anymore right no that came to an end towards the beginning of the pandemic eric or his wife is from vermont her family's there oh right they moved to vermont they sold barefoot and he's building a studio out there. That's right. Yeah. I've caught glimpses of his new thing online. So he sold the building. Yeah. Okay. So then you're, you all are out of that situation. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And and so then you're at where you're at now, where you're talking to me from, right? Yeah. So during that process, I stayed on for like another six months to like try and find a buyer who would maybe want to keep the staff on and keep the studio going on. And, you know, unfortunately weren't able to find someone to do that. And so at that point I was like, okay, well, I'm in the middle of co-producing this Raylan Baxter record with Raylan and all these other projects that were kind of on hold from the pandemic. And Mm -hmm. those things were coming back and I needed to find a place to be working again. And it was becoming clear that with the real estate agent bringing people by to tour constantly and the important thing that ha- needed to happen for Barefoot was to sell. And me being there making records, it wasn't really meshing with that. Yeah. So at that point, I emailed Greg Wells and a bunch of other people just kind of looking for a new spot or a new position. Greg told me that he was building a new studio, his new Atmos room, and asked me if I wanted to help him with that. So I spent eight months building Greg's room. And in the meantime, was mixing from home and looking for a new studio for myself. And in the process of that, the studio that I'm currently in, that I'm talking to you from, it was Money Mark's studio for a really long time. And mm-hmm. I worked with him on a bunch of stuff and came close with him and would come by here to hang out all the time. And he had told me for a while, like, I'm going to move out of there at some point. You should really move in when I move out. And he knew I was looking for a studio. The studio is owned by the family of Mia Doitad, who is a really great artist that I had done a record with and became really close with. And her partner hit me up and said, hey, we're renting out Mark's studio. We're about to post ads and stuff, but do you want it? We'll hold it for you. And so I moved into like a temporary studio with a friend at that point and just immediately drove over here and, and moved in. And that was, that'll be two years ago in August. 
That's great. So you've you've landed well. Yeah. We're almost out of time, but it's really fascinating to me how you've really diversified in a number of different areas. You have the ability to make records. You have the ability to do tech work. Clearly, you get along with people. And you're, as we say, politely persistent. So you take all that into account and you can really, I know it can be tough and I know that there's a lot of detail that we're kind of skipping over here and, and based on time. But if you try to put your best foot forward and, and have these qualities that you do, it sure does make it a lot easier, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, being someone that people want to have in the room, both because they like being around you Mm-hmm. And because you add something that someone else can't do in the room. I mean, my ability to fix gear and to wire and to crack a joke were the things that got me into control rooms. It's also, it's a great backup too, because record making, as you and I both know, is like, it's like this, it's up and down. Oh, yeah. And it's not always consistent, but wiring and tech work can fill in the gaps when you really need it most. Yeah. And the pandemic was a perfect example of that. The eight months that I spent building Greg Wells studio when I couldn't really make records was a lifesaver. I bet. And that happened to be at a point where I didn't have a studio. And even if I did, people weren't going to go into them anyways. Yeah. That was a total lifesaver. And then this studio exists because I had the tools and the most of the wiring that I did here was scrap material left over from other installs that I've done over the last 10 years. You know, Interesting. It, having that skill opened a lot of doors. And like I see, we are almost out of time here, but I just want to ask you, Eric's a super crazy smart dude who makes great records. He seems like you've spent a lot of time around him, as is Greg Wells. But just specifically regarding Eric, were there any takeaways about the business of what we do that you took from Eric? Like any kind of like little nuggets of wisdom that that he imparted on you? Yeah, I mean, I I guess from him, I just learned like for someone who is so technical and is so excited about gear and is so meticulous about it, mm-hmm. even with that quality and that reputation and, you know, as someone who went to the trouble of designing and making his own console and gear because it wasn't working right, that doesn't come from a love of gear. That doesn't come from a love of the technical process or like this hyper focus on equipment it comes from a love of music and he has this hyper pursuit of that perfection because he likes songs and it's never been about oh if this gear is more pristine that's a a victory in itself it's always about this will let me do something that serves the music more yeah for sure and it's really easy to get bogged down in I don't have the right toys or not having the perfect piece of equipment or anything like that. And you would think working at an equipment company like that and being a tech would push me down that road. But seeing someone like Eric, who was so technical and so technically minded, and it doesn't come from a love of the technical itself. It comes from a love of music. Yeah. was really important. Well, very, very interesting. Quite a journey there, Tim. For the audience, in the show notes will be the link to Tim's website, osullivanaudio.com. Be sure and check that out and any social media stuff that I'll add into that as well. Tim, really great to meet you. At some point, we'll meet in person. It's inevitable, I think. Thanks so much for being here with me today and sharing your story. Of course, thank you. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Tim O'Sullivan. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. If you like the show and you like the interviews I'm doing here, head on over to your podcast aggregator and leave a five-star review. That helps out the show tremendously. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magic voice of Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Feel free to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.